This is the Made It in Music podcast. I'm Seth Mosley, and this is Show 133. Welcome to the podcast, where we bring you tools and resources to help you go full time in music and to stay in. The music business is a roller coaster ride, changing faster than any of us can pay attention to. We all need a competitive edge to stay ahead and to stay successful. What's working, what isn't, and what's coming? That's exactly what this show is all about. Back again with Full Circle Music, the Made It in Music podcast. Thank you for joining us today. If you've been paying attention to what we've been up to at FCM lately, you will know that we recently launched a new YouTube series where our team answers some of the Internet's most popular questions about the music industry. If you would like to check out that new YouTube series, you are certainly welcome and encouraged to. You can find it on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash officialfcmusic. To no surprise, one of the most common topics for questions people are asking about the music industry revolves around record labels. A lot of our listeners may have some sort of an understanding of what record labels do, but in reality, the record label business model is vastly different from most other businesses out there. And there's no denying, unless you live the record label life every single day, it can get kind of confusing. One of our missions on this podcast is to help reveal to you, our wonderful listeners, the mysteries of record labels. And that's exactly what we set out to do on today's episode. Today, in this episode, we recorded at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee, Seth sits down with Stephanie Wright. Stephanie is the Senior Vice President of A&R from Universal Music Group, Nashville. And needless to say, she knows some things. She has helped launch artists like Casey Musgraves, Sam Hunt, and Gary Allen, just to name a few. Today, Stephanie is going to take you inside what we are calling the record label machine, and we're going to reveal how the moving parts of a label all work together. Enjoy! This is Seth Mosley here. We're at Lipscomb University in their beautiful video facility, and we're doing the Made It Music podcast today. We've got Stephanie Wright with us. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. We're going to be learning about what it's like inside the record label machine. There's a lot of misconceptions out there and things that, you know, neither of us probably even knew before getting into the business. That's how things work. So we're going to dive into that today. Great. So um, let's talk about, maybe take me back to the moment that you knew that you wanted to pursue a career in the music business. Well, it was... A long time ago, 20-plus years. <laughs> um, I had moved here in my uh, starter marriage. My husband at the time was trying to go to school at Meharry, and we had an option of going to Iowa or coming to Nashville. And my cousins were in the group Shadezy. I think at the time I moved here, they didn't have that name yet. They may have been the Osborne sisters or the Violets or something. They were trying to figure out what they were going to be called. I had flown out here to you know, sort of see what things were like. And that very weekend I came in, they signed their record deal. So I got to meet people like Linda Adele Howard and Randy Goodman and some of the writers that they had been writing with, Connie Harrington and Bonnie Baker. Um, Carolyn Don Johnson was a good friend of theirs. And we went through this whole series of things we did that weekend between being in the studio and 
them signing, like I said, signing their deal. And at that point, I was like, this is what Nashville is? This is amazing. Who who knew this was all here? And I thought I could come out here and get a job in healthcare because that's what I'd been doing in Utah. Mm-hmm. But at that point, when I got here, I thought, well, that's something I want to do. Like, this looks really fun and sounds really fun. And I didn't realize that every weekend was not quite like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I learned that once we actually finally moved here. But Yeah, so, so going from that to... Obviously, being in an A and R role now, what was the journey between that? Because you, you have a really interesting story of how you got into it. Well, I think a lot of the people that are in the business side of it come through an internship program um, through one of the colleges, um, wherever that might be. I think there's a couple of them here: Belmont, MTSU, and I had not done that because I was uh, several years down the path of college. But I knew I wanted to be a part of, you know, what Kristen and Kelsey and Cassidy were doing somehow, somehow behind the scenes. I didn't want to be an artist. I didn't want to be a writer. But I could tell that there there were these jobs behind there that I didn't even know really existed between what a manager did or a business manager even. Um, And in the process of kind of going to these uh, interviews that I was going to, I would learn a little bit more each time, but realized... I wasn't going to get any of these jobs because I hadn't come through some of those internships. I didn't have the relationships, and that's sort of how word of mouth spreads on how you get the job. And after going through a lot of rejection, <laughs> um, there was a, an ad in the newspaper that came up for an executive assistant for a CEO of a major label I was like, that's not how this works. That's yeah. not something. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> that's not... Um, but I thought, well, why not? And I went ahead and went to the uh, agency that was, you know, on the newspaper. And I think I had to even take a type test and go through several interviews there. And then there was a couple people that they sent over to work uh, or to be interviewed by, who at the time was the president and CEO, uh, Pat Quigley, at mm-hmm. Capital Nashville. Yeah. So in that that turned into that, that job, I'm assuming? A, yeah, that turned into a, my, my job there, yes. And how did that, like what was what was the story between that and getting into A&R at a label? Well, I was there for about two years, and I kind of refer to that as my internship because that was my first real um, looking inside a label and what that looked like with all the responsibilities that were there in each department, how that looked and what this department did and this department did. Um, I immediately knew I didn't want to be in promotion. (laughs) It seemed like a really hard job. Um, And I saw people up on desks screaming at people on the phones about getting records played, and that just was not going to be something I wanted to do. But the A&R job did seem sort of intriguing, and I remember liking a lot of what marketing was doing. But I was just busy trying to, you know, keep my head down and learn. And I had gone to lunch one day. I remember coming back, and Pat said, hey, there's a meeting going on back here. I don't know that I'm going to continue to be in this role, and I have a contract. You don't. The person they're bringing in has an assistant already, so you probably need to find something else. And really, I'd only been there for two years, and I thought, oh, my word, my resume is just screwed at this point. What am I going to do? <laughs> and then there was a girl <clears throat> that had worked uh, with me. Her name's Haley McLemore, and she's been a promotion person. She's now a manager for a lot of major acts in our format, but... Mm. Um, she said, hey, there's an opening over here at Mercury in a Why don't you come over here and interview and see um, if anything interests you there? And I had gone over. I met with Gary Harrison, who then introduced me to Carson Chamberlain. I think I was hired like two weeks later and started there and really didn't even know what I was doing other than still answering phone calls and setting up calendars and things. But I quickly learned that 
all of the publishing people that were important would come through that office. A lot of the acts, a lot of the writers, and I thought, oh, I like this. This is fun. <laughs> but my process, actually, getting to the creative side of it was a little bit longer than most take, two because there was a woman who worked there, and her name was Claudia. She had been there for maybe 20 years, but she did the administration, the A&R administration side. And I had a young son, and I thought, well, if I want to be in the business for a while, I probably need to pursue that. That's where they're not getting fired every two years. And you're, so. you were saying specifically in the, the admin mm-hmm. side? So I thought, how do I focus on that? And, and Keith Stiegel was the head of our department. So he needed a production assistant as well as just someone kind of assisting there. I, uh, like within maybe a month, kind of organically went into that role of being the production assistant when he would go in the studio with Alan Jackson or whoever, Jamie O'Neill or Mark Will, whoever it was that he was producing at the time. And they shortly brought someone after to be there with me and that they kind of took over the coordinator role. Yeah. Well, and, and, and big congratulations on big, big promotion late 2018. It's amazing. <laughs> Several years later. Thank you. Well, what, what were the, what were the jobs kind of between then and, where you are now. I I mean, I did do the, the administration role probably up until about six, seven years ago. And it it was James Stroud that said, when he was at one point, he was the head of our department. He said, I need everybody in here to be creative. Even if you're doing, you're paying bills, I want you still to be creative. You should know who are, who the people are. And I was like, this is it. This is that moment that I can, you know, start taking meetings. He, he said so. I can take meetings. <laughs> And so I would, and there was a few people that came in that probably were just starting to, I think about Jeff Skaggs, who had never had a pitch meeting with anyone. He was, you know, probably just the mailroom guy and he was pitching for DreamWorks or whatever. So I started taking meetings with that and eventually it just spread. And that's when I discovered, you know, people like Brandy Clark and Shane McAnally and those people didn't even have publishing deals at the time. And they would come in and play their songs, Aaron Enderlin being one who came in and played Me Last Call, I think the same time. Shane's song was getting pitched to Aaron's publishing company to Joe Fisher, who was working in our department at the same time. So, and that kind of led to, you know, getting cuts. And then eventually that led into me talking people into signing Casey Musgraves. Mm. And so from there, when Mike Dungan came over, he just said, I think you should probably just do creative 100% of the time. And I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I should. <laughs> Which, looking back now, you know, Grammys later, I mean, that, that was a pretty good decision on your part to push them to do that. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm very thankful. But I'm also glad that I kind of took this path. It gave me a, an appreciation for the whole process of making a project, not just picking songs or getting artists in rooms or being with producers. I kind of looked overall, and, it, and I took the slow roll, but that meant I got to watch a lot of different executives do a bunch of different things, and that sort of helped me decide, oh, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And we ended up with, you know, Sam Hunt going out and doing what he did and making a big impact in our format mm. by, by me watching, you know, by taking the slow roll and watching other people kind of mess up, I was able to go, okay, this is not what we do. This is not what we do. We do this instead. Yeah, that's, that's good. So how exactly would you describe your role now? What, it, what, it, what all does that encompass? I, I think it encompasses a, a lot of different things depending on where the artist is. If we're recruiting talent, 
and it's a brand new baby act, chances are they're coming from a publishing company and or a, they've had some experience either coming to Nashville or writing or at least being around enough to know what the bluebird is and how some of this stuff all works. Um, and it's a little bit of a faster pace on the new end now because you're having to jump in quicker because everybody's trying to sign these new acts that are coming in. So that's a that's a that's one part of it. The other part is dealing with a lot of these established acts that maybe are coming out on their sophomore record or you know three or four projects in, and you're trying to help them go. Okay, how do we assess where we're at? How do we continue to grow our audience? How do I stay within you know what I feel really great about and who I am as an artist and my brand? And how do I continue to get people to want to stay engaged? And who should I be writing with? Are these songs too, you know, all the different variables that go on with creating a project, not just when you're brand new, but when you're, you know, three or four projects in. Yeah. So what is, what does that kind of look like on a, you know, weekly basis, if you can even, or a daily basis, if you can even kind of quantify that? Um, Some of it's taking song meetings and meeting with publishers. Um, Some of it's having coffee with a writer. Some of it's having, you know, drinks or lunch with an attorney and that could vary within the day but I would say thankfully there's still you know time to listen to songs that are getting pitched um, and having that engagement with people because I think that's really where you find out the most information it's it's a little easier these days to stay in your office and just be on the computer and listen to stuff through the internet as it's being sent but there's there's an importance of still getting out and actually networking with people and finding out how the song's being created. And listening to music, I feel like I learn a lot about the writers. And when I hear that name pop up several times, I'm like, wait a minute, what they're doing might actually work for Adam Hambrick or Maddie and Tay or Jordan Davis. Yeah. And so um, that's a good majority of it. Sometimes we go to writers' rounds. We do a lot of showcases. It involves traveling quite a bit, especially out to these acts that are newer and seeing what their shows look like and how they're, you know, stage, what their stage presence is and how their show flows and what songs are getting reactions and what aren't getting reactions. And then we take that back and go, okay, these songs right here are probably the, the things that we need to focus on when we go back in the studio. So is uh, that, that's what I was going to ask. Is there a lot of travel in the role where you're kind of going out, you know, seeing how these songs are reacting live? Because mm-hmm. a lot of it is just, I'm, I, would, I would assume, just going with your gut, right? But yes. then kind of validating it. With, yes, you know, outside. Uh, yeah, it's amazing what reaction. you can actually. Yeah, I, I feel like artists get that um, full frontal, you know, because they're there and they're trying to get that engagement from the audience, and they can tell whether or not something's reacting, especially if they've done it several times. And by the fourth show, you still have people trying to text, and they're not really. And now you kind of measure it by oh, phones are going up, people are recording, they're actually trying to record and watch at the same time, but you get to see that from you know, uh, an audience perspective and what that reaction is. So I think it's important to be there and just kind of see all those things and experience that with the artist Mm -hmm. so that when they come back and they say, no, 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 I promise this is reacting, you actually have seen it happen. And you're like, okay, I get it. Totally get it. This is going to be that song. I think uh, when we're talking about A&R, the the role, what what it is specifically, there's probably more misconceptions around what it is Mm -hmm. than almost anything else in the business. How would you define it? Like, what is A&R really? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, 
especially in terms of I always try to stay, I don't know, if I define it, then I have to stick to it, right? Not necessarily. <laughs> I think it just, I really, I do think it changes per artist, but I think it's a matter of helping the artists kind of channel what it is that they're trying to do and how they communicate that to their audience and, and, and helping accent anything that you can to help them um, flourish in our market. And that could involve you know, several different pieces. Like I said, I could be one day kind of having a publisher hat on and um, helping with uh, co-writes, or I could be setting up time for them to go in studio, or like today going back with one of the artists and sitting down and sort of nailing how we're going to release a project and what songs need to go together in order to, you know, give uh, the audience what they're looking for or what they want to portray if, if, if we're doing something different than an uh, album release. It really just varies all the time, but really it's just a matter of taking care of the artist and the creativity and being sort of a neutral zone within the label where you can look around and say, I know marketing needs this kind of song. I know this works better for streaming and this works better for terrestrial radio, but here's where we're not going to compromise. As an artist, they still have to have integrity and believe in what they're doing. And so you're kind of there as an advocate for them as well, just to make sure that, you know, you're you're looking at the bigger picture from within the label, kind of like what a manager would do, but yeah. but within the label and trying to take care of the artist while you're listening to everybody else's needs and wanting to make sure you fulfill their needs as well. That might be the best explanation I've ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it may change tomorrow. I don't know. <laughs> yes, it, and it does. So, And you touched on it a little bit, but how is A&R different for a, a, a new artist versus somebody who's really established? Well, I think the new artists come in, you know, like I said, they come in a lot from publishing companies. So they've had a minute to sit in a writer's room and know whether or not they're a writer you can help that by looking at an overall picture. Like if, if they're an artist that is a baby act on a publishing company and the publishing company typically goes within their publishing company and has them write with their writers, I kind of look at it, at it overall and I can say, well, who you probably should be set up with is this, this, and this. And it's not always the typical, you know, monster writer. We all love putting everybody in with Josh Osborne because he's amazing. Uh, but sometimes these the younger acts need to sit in a room and kind of figure out who, what their perspective is as a writer and what they offer. So you kind of do that uh, and help with that, get them in the right rooms, and then you help with the way the project's going to sound overall. If it's not someone that's been a writer with them that they're, that they're recording with, then who best do you marry that person up with? Do you call Seth Mosley and say, hey, I think you should probably work with this artist because I think you would get the way that they musically think. Um, that changes if you were a more established artist because you've had several years where you've kind of figured that out. And maybe you're looking at it from a different perspective at that point and going, how do I, you know, continue to stay inventive about what I'm doing and keep everybody engaged but not go too far off brand or be comfortable with where I'm at in life and be okay with, you know, have exposing that much of my life. Sometimes that's something you kind of have to consider too. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes that makes tons of sense. So Did um, I go down a rabbit hole there. No, you you, you didn't. That was <laughs> okay. a good that was oh. that was a good answer. I mean how how you're how you're gonna go about A and Ring a record for Sam Hunt versus, mm -hmm. you know, whatever new artist you're you're signing is is probably gonna look entirely different. 
So um, within your company, what does is, what is the structure look like? I think a lot of people are very curious of, okay, you mentioned obviously publishers are walking into your room, there's writers coming in. What, what does it look like if it was kind of like an org chart, like for Universal? It, it's sort of divided up in sections where you have an overall marketing strategy, and within that you have publicity that funnels up through there. You have a creative department that helps with imaging and videos and whatever, advertise, like all the stuff that comes out. Um, you have a digital marketing component that deals with a lot of the socials and how all that kind of cohesively works within the label. Then you have promotion teams that go out and market specifically to terrestrial or promote directly to terrestrial radio. Really, that's sort of what separates the imprints. Um, overall, at Universal, we have you know Universal Music Group Nashville, but within that, we have EMI, MCA, Capital, um, and who am I missing? Mercury. Yeah. And those people specific to that promotion staff are really what changes up the artist in being on Mercury. Everyone else sort of is working on all the artists. Um, and we try to kind of get a point person for each department and kind of collectively meet up often to make sure that we're, you know, moving forward correctly on each artist. Um, and a you know, obviously one of those components as well, but... That's sure. kind of how everything works. Is there any overlap between, you know, your company and others? Like, I don't know, joint ventures? Are there things that you guys do that require other companies? Or is, is everything pretty self-contained? Uh, w- uh, there, there are, and I can't really speak specific to, you know, what marketing or digital does. Um, I know I rely heavily on our, my, our publishing community, um, I think that there probably are independent A&R people out there that that do do some things. We have worked with them on occasion on different projects um, and brought them in. Um, and I, we also have joint ventures. There's a couple of them. One in particular, well, it's not a joint venture. It's a partnership with Disney. We have Buena Vista Records. And the counterpart uh, to my role over there is Mike Daly. And we talk often about Adam Hambrick or CB30 mm. um, and kind of approach it from two different angles. He lives in L.A., he has sort of a tap into that world, and so I rely on him when it's when I have to ask about, you know, would it be smart to bring these guys out and write for several days out there, or would it be better to have, you know, do you have people over there that you feel like are coming to Nashville that we should make sure that they get in, you know, involved with, or what else do you have going on out there that we need to make sure that the Nashville artists are coming out there and doing? Sure. So for this type of deals, why why would some be structured that way? Like, why would you guys have, you know? maybe an artist shared with, with Disney, like you mentioned, or is it, is it kind of where it originates or how does, it, it how does, does. that work? I, that's sort of above where, where I make those decisions are made on an sure. executive level. Um, and I'm not sure how the imprint Disney imprint came up, um, to fruition other than I'm sure Ken Bunt and Mike had a conversation and they decided it would be a good partnership. Um, we have several different, like we have a joint, uh, an art, a couple of artists that are shared with pop labels that are sister labels to us. Cassie Ashton is signed joint with Interscope and with Universal. And I think mainly because of the type of music she creates, where it could potentially fall in our format. There may be certain things that we could work potentially out of here. And there also are things that they can potentially work out of their world. More more on the pop side mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. just just country. Country. So, 
and that was going to be my next question is how, how do you guys handle genre? Is, is there, you know, genre overlap in, in your system? <laughs> like, I mean, you kind of answered it a little bit, but. It is, it is a little tricky. And I, I've noticed that that, that, that's the one thing that I feel like of, has stayed consistent. I think everyone's always questioning, well, what is country? But I've heard that the entire time I've been in this business. What is country? And I feel like it, there's ebb and flow of it's really pop and it kind of comes back into more of a traditional sense, and then it leans maybe a little bit further Americana, and then it kind of comes back in. And I think now because of streaming and playlisting and the ability for people to go in and do their own and create their own playlists, it's a little bit more organic than easier, I guess, than us making mixtapes or whatever we used to do when we would, in my case, uh, record the top 30 countdown and only get certain songs yeah. on cassette yeah. um, and make a mixtape. But... I think because of that, the the bleed of what's um, defined as country is a little bit harder. Like you have Casey Musgraves, who is a country artist, but maybe the production leans a little bit pop, but the songs themselves are core country and it's storytelling. But then again, I feel like Ed Sheeran is also a storyteller and he's in the pop world. So it's kind of hard to define uh, right now, but I think it always has been. Sure. So are you, how does that influence your role in the process? I mean, are you kind of ever trying to guide people to be a little more country or less country or more pop or less pop? How do you navigate that? I think really my job is just to keep them authentic. (laughs) I can't, I tend to lean in um, people who have their own lane. So they have something about them that sets them apart from everyone else. At the core, I think that's what everybody's trying to find, sure. honestly. Uh, but I don't, I don't necessarily want to push them into, you know, a more traditional lane if that's not what they're naturally geared to do. I think just authenticity will end up showing through. Mm. So you have to kind of keep them and don't let them be influenced by, even if radio says, we might want to take out, you know, the snaps or something, you kind of have to value it. What, what are you actually saying? What are you actually doing? What, what, what is it you mean by that? Is it about the beat and the rhythm and should we fix this? And does this feel okay to you? But I don't, I don't know that I want to push them one way or the other. I've watched in the past where we've done that and it has not worked, mm-hmm. where we've vanillaed somebody down to this is how you should dress, this is how you should sing, this is how your song should sound. And at that point, they've kind of lost who they started out being and that they're just sitting turning going, well, what, who am I? And I think maybe my role more than anything is just to say, stay true to your gut. You should listen to the people around you that are advising you because they've been in this business for a long time. But at the end of the day, you still have to be in check with your core when you go to bed at night. You have to know that what you're doing, you're passionate about. And and you're not going to be mad if you hear it 10 15 years from now. Well, that's so huge. And I'm sure every artist watching this probably is rejoicing in their, in their, (laughs) wherever they are thinking, okay, labels are not evil. A&R doesn't want to change us. You know, like, I think that's maybe a, a, whatever, misconception or something. But I love how you, you hit on that, that your job is really just to protect an artist from veering off of the path of authenticity. Yeah. And then creating opportunities for them to kind of grow. Um, and, I think we were talking about a little earlier being uncomfortable and getting out of their comfort zone because sometimes it's just a matter of stretching and getting out uh, where you might learn something if you're in a room with a writer that maybe you wouldn't particularly think would be helpful, but 
you take something back to the people you write with all the time and all of a sudden you're a better writer and the song's better because you've learned something. And I think it's just a matter of maybe helping them walk through those exercises and remind them that creativity is a little bit of like a muscle where you have to push yourself and continue to exercise it sure. every day. It's like training. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. so good. Um, I want to ask about, can you explain the idea behind imprints? Like what is an imprint? Why, why do, why does your label have them? What's, why not just universal? Like what, what is an imprint? Well, I, I mean, in our world and, and I'm probably not the right person to ask this, <laughs> but in, and, and to me, it just means that's, that's basically the imprint is the, there's probably legal stuff that I don't sure. really know about, sure. but in in our world, the way we function, that really is basically terrestrial radio, mm. and that's the the people that work songs to radio essentially are the imprint, yeah. I guess, because otherwise the rest of us are all just universal. They're a part of Universal too, but they're specific to Mercury artists, or and we sort of divide that according to what that. Um, promotion team kind of gears themselves to. Yeah. So like stylistically, mm-hmm. maybe artist personality wise yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I feel like there's certain, there's maybe an imprint that has a little bit more left of center artists and they just know how to kind of get those artists through the, the machine sure. of, you know, how radio works and they know how to work their radio people, whereas others might be down the middle mainstream. Yeah. country. So when you sign an artist, you're not necessarily thinking in terms of this artist would be good for this imprint or this one or the other? I don't know. I think instinctually, much like I feel about an artist when I see him, I probably kind of already go, okay, I can see this could fit here. Mm. But uh, artists often ask that when they come in, they're like, which imprint am I going to go on? Yeah. And I'm always like, well, the best one. (laughs) 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 It's going to be the very best one. Well, how do we know that? Well, because they're going to be the ones that have the space and the time and the energy to devote for you. They're passionate about what you're doing. And it is a hard job to go out there and and push to get a lot of these songs when you're competing against a bunch of other artists for radio space. And that's probably being, it's not just for radio. I mean, I know that our our, our digital departments are doing the same thing on playlisting, but they have to be passionate about you. And so you want them to raise their hand and go, no, no, I get this. I totally know what we could do. We could take them out and do this, or we're going to launch them this way. Mm. So that's no, that, that's a good answer. And to kind of piggyback on that, how often does your organization experience like shifts in maybe just the, the structure of it or even strategy, overall strategy of it? Well, it really depends on the artist. And I think that we, much like I want them to be authentic, that there's goals and you kind of set those up from the beginning. What is it that you are looking to accomplish? What is it that you see in five years? And I know it's a hard question for anybody to answer. But how do we help you get from where you're at now to where you want to be? And how do we become good musical partners in that sense? And then you sort of kind of take those goals and you figure out what strategy you need to get there. Is it going directly to, you know, the digital partners and saying, hey, we're going to launch it this way and do it this direction? Or does it involve going out on radio tour or do you go make a bunch of visual products that go out to, um, or content that go out to YouTube? Like how, how do you see this working best for you? And where do we see where we have some steam and how can we best, like, would you feel comfortable if we did it this way and kind of cater it to what it is that they're wanting. And I'm sure as a company, we want to make sure that we're doing the right thing for the company overall. And, you know, 
everybody's making money and doing the right thing. Sure. So, but big picture strategy wise, is is it is it kind of always tend to be the same thing, or is that, you know, obviously we're now versus ten years ago. I'm sure it was drastically different in terms of maybe the end goal. Yes. Well, I do. I do think you have to define it differently. It might have been selling six million, you yeah. know albums and now you look at it differently and how, how or some people are def- like they want five number ones on radio and that's where you have to approach it from but I think it changes not even it, it'll by the time I say this it'll change in sure. six months from now and we'll have to have something different and I think you just have to be really flexible and really fluid and kind of do what's best for however you're going about launching that artist I, I think there's not one size fits all sure at all anymore sure so when you're looking to sign a new artist, do you have any set expectations on ROI in particular, like just getting return on the investment? How do you go about, you know, setting those expectations? Oh, I think you have to go into it knowing that it's going to not be instant. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and you have to know that in, that they are going to be in it for the long haul too. Um, you try to have a lot of those discussions up front. D- do you want to be someone that's on the road all the time? Are you going to be okay with leaving your family? Mm. This seems a lot easier. It's very sexy and all this stuff is amazing, but then you're gone a lot and you're not going to have time with your kids. Or, you know, what does this look like five years from now when you do have a family? Um, so you kind of think about those things. What are their goals to you know open up shows? Are they they just going to be good with doing a circuit of bars, or do they want to sure. have play at LP Field or Nissan Stadium or whatever sure. the place the venue is, yeah. and kind of look at that? <laughs> I, I'm I would think Mike would always opt for the Nissan Stadium. Sure, sure, <laughs> that exactly. would be the end goal. But we also know that that's just not that way it works. Everybody's yeah. got sort of different paths and are going to get to a. And you just have to figure out if it makes sense if it if you can help that person get to those goals. Yeah. So from the from the end of the label, knowing that okay, this is not going to be an instant thing. We're not just going to, you know, put all of our efforts and and resources behind an artist, and it'll we'll return our money tomorrow. Like it's yeah. not just going to happen like that. It's not. It ta- it's a it's a slower roll than most people think. And I I do I, you know I think we've heard it said a lot. People have been here for ten years and. They're like, how oh, we've never heard of you. You've been for, here for 10 years. But yeah. I think it's just that grind of figuring it out and being out on the road and kind of, you know, moving things forward. Um, yeah. No, that's good. That's good. I think a lot of people, you know, question what what do labels actually look for. And, and, and what I'm hearing you say is like, okay, well, if, if, if we get behind an artist, we got to know that we're in it for – this is a marathon. It's not mm-hmm. a sprint because you're not just going to snap your finger magically and have – an artist just be headlining Nissan Stadium, right? As you mentioned, overnight. Well, I do think it shifted a little bit because I think at the time I started, I, everything was focused sort of on an overall album, and we would work toward an album. Mm. And now I think it feels like our format's a little bit more song driven, like mm. per song. And and deals, artist deals may look differently in the future. It may not be that you know we're setting up album deals, maybe it's something other than that, um, the way we release songs. I, I think the consumption of music is at more of a rapid pace. Uh, r- radio still tends to run a little bit slower, just in the crawl of what it takes to get up the charts and, sure. and that whole spin game. And But 
as far as putting music out there, I think, you know, in order for an artist to stay out on the road, they have to have music that's released more often than just two songs a year, potentially, especially if you're a baby act. So I think sure. we're just having to look at that a little bit differently, too. Yeah. And when you're looking at artists on the front end, what, what makes an artist signable in the first place? Well, I sort of am a sucker for a good texture and voice and that kind of thing. You want to know that they can actually deliver something um, when you sit them down in front of people. Uh, sometimes it's the, the songwriting's there and you probably just need to refine a little bit more how it sounds when it's coming out. Um, they, they just have that sort of intangible thing that you can't really write down on a piece of paper. Like if you're going in for a job interview and you fill out the form and it says you have to do this and type this fast and whatever, you can. there's a lot of that intangible stuff that happens that you can't really define um, when you're around someone, but you can feel it. I remember thinking that the moment I sat down with Sam and there was a presence about him and some sort of confidence that I don't know if he knew or maybe he does know he has it, but I was, and I had the same thing with Casey, and I didn't really know her. I cold called her one night and said, I know you don't know me, but I've heard a couple of your songs, and I think we should go have uh, lunch, and we did, and I just remember sitting across the table from her thinking, she's got all these things, and she I don't even know she knows that she has all this stuff about her, but I came back going, oh, i got to figure out how to work with her. And I felt the same way about Sam. Wow, that that's very well said. Your is it? your gut has <laughs> no, it is, it is, and, and your and your your gut has proven to be right in in both of those instances. So, um, can you talk about what enables an artist? Man, just since we're talking about Sam and Casey. What enables an artist to have longevity in over? You know, you know, they're not just going to be a, a one hit wonder. Uh, well, I think. Those two artists specifically are similar in that they both are very confident in their songwriting and ability to um, talk to their listener. Casey's good about uh, the conversational aspect of her songwriting. She's very comfortable with, and I feel like that that potentially is part of it. I also think um, the endurance of how the rigorous schedule and being able to you know, be on camera at one point and then turning around and, and doing a phoner and then sitting in a writer's room and writing and then being on stage and then the travel in between and not getting exhausted. And I think there's a reason that there's not a ton of superstars because that's a lot of endurance to get to that sure. point. And some of it involves luck and timing. I think about Chris Stapleton and how he's been here for years writing and we all loved the songwriting that he he was doing. But he had taken a couple stabs at radio, one, I don't know, two before, I think that golden moment when he was at the award show and won those awards and performed with Justin and it just completely took off from there and changed everything for him. But some of that just happened to be timing sure. and strategy. Yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. You always want to hope that those things line up, but I think that's that's part of it. In, in Sam's case or even in Casey's case, I think they were just so unique and different at the time they came out that people gravitated to it. They're much like maybe the Dixie Chicks were when they came out because people were like, oh, I love this. I didn't know I liked this. I didn't know we needed this, but now I know we need this. So yeah, that's part of it. That's so good. Well, um, as we're wrapping up, we are going to dive into our last portion of the interview, which we call the lightning round. Lightning round. Best advice ever given to you? I think it's just to have courage 
and to be inclusive. I think a lot of times we don't realize we should share what we have with others and and much like this. You're doing it right now. Yes, yes. And I and I don't I, I didn't really have a lot of that. I didn't have like a mentor that sat down and said, You're going about this the right way or you're not, or do you have questions? And I find myself always wanting to look at these young kids going, This is why this didn't work. This is what you should stand up for yourself and insert yourself in this in this position. Cause I didn't have that. I kinda had to figure that out on my own. That's good. Top trait in the successful artists that you work with? Being kind. I look at Reba and Kenny and Luke, um, Chris, and they're nice. They're nice to everyone. I think it makes a big difference. Wow, that's that's good. One thing you wish would change in the music industry? Oh, well, <laughs> maybe the 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 pace, and I mean that on many levels. The pace of how quickly we have to turn things around now, and how quickly artists are getting signed and how quickly they have to develop. And sometimes that's not good or bad, but I do wish that would, that part of it would slow down a little bit on the other side of it. I feel like maybe the crawl at radio is a little slower and I wish that would speed up a little bit faster. Yeah. So I guess overall pace. Yeah, that's good. Let's see. Favorite. Okay. Well, here, here's a good one. What about a song that almost didn't make a record that turned out to be a hit? Do you have any of those experiences? Ooh. I might have had to think about that a minute. Yeah. Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going back through. I, well, I mean, last call, quite honestly, I remember I was in the studio with Leanne, and she wasn't 100% sure she wanted to cut it. And she's like, does the label really like this? I mean, do y'all really like this song? And I was like, yes, you have to put it on your project. Yes, you need to go in and sing this song. Yes. Wow. And then she went in, and that ended up being a big success for her. And therefore, kind of being a success for the writers, too. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's awesome. Um, And lastly, first song that really impacted your life. I'm sure it was some Def Leppard song. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I can't even think how far back that would be. Um, I mean, I know what impacts my life now. And what I really enjoy is watching my kids sort of discover songs and, and artists and how they enjoy listening to a lot of the stuff that we either are putting out or how they're, you know, influenced by the young artists that are coming out on all the other formats as well. I don't know. I'd have to think back about that. Sorry. I okay. guess that was not a good answer. No, hey, that was an answer. That's awesome. <laughs> well, um, Stephanie, this has been an absolute pleasure. I am going to go back and listen to this just because I feel like there's so much that I learned in this conversation. I'm sure our audience learned an absolute ton as well. So thank you so so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you. I appreciate it. And for those of you guys who are interested, we are going to be doing a deep dive, a little bonus segment on getting a job in the music business, more specifically on a record label. We're going to talk for a few minutes on that. So you can check that out at madeitmusic.com. Just go to the episodes page and find the Stephanie Wright episode. It'll be right there. So Stephanie, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate those of you who have been loyal listeners to this podcast for so long. And hey, if this happens to be one of the first episodes that you've heard, welcome. We release new episodes every other week, and occasionally there's a bonus episode or two, and a lot of people have told us that this podcast is one of the most eye-opening resources out there for learning about the music industry. So if you aren't already subscribed to this podcast, make sure you do that. Because if you have a serious desire to make it in music, 
we want to make sure that this podcast is there to help you do exactly that. Plus, occasionally, we announce some limited time opportunities. And if you listen to an episode too late, you may miss out on that. So whatever your favorite podcast platform is, subscribe to make sure that you're notified when a new episode releases. Now, on to the deep dive for this episode. Stephanie talks about how to get a job with a record label. We know that many of you are specifically interested in getting hired by a record label or another music company. We happen to get asked about advice for that very topic all the time. So if you're interested in getting a job with a record label or a music company, make sure that you check this out. Or maybe you're just curious about what record labels look for in their employees. That's also a good reason to listen. So you can check out the deep dive on our podcast website at madeitinmusic.com. Again, that's madeitinmusic.com. Right there on the homepage, you can sign up for all of our season two deep dives completely for free. You can also get access to the show notes and resources for this particular episode at madeitmusic.com slash 134. Thank you to Jericho Scroggins for doing such a phenomenal job editing this podcast, and we will see you next time. To outro this episode, we want to highlight some new music from one of our artists, Madeline McDonald. This is her latest single, Nobody's Home. Nobody's home. Somebody turn the light